Go ahead and, and turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 4. And this passage is, uh, well, chapter 4 is attached to chapter 3. That shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone. Um, but, but it's also, it's kind of a PS, like, and continuing, um, and it, it's, uh, it's attached firmly, so firmly to chapter three that if you miss the end of chapter three, um, go back and listen to it this week. Um, it, it's important. It's good stuff. Um, Paul has been talking about, um, glory. He, in fact, he mentioned it a whole lot, maybe more than necessary in chapter three. Glory, glory, hallelujah. And he's been talking about the superiority of Christ himself. Um, and this affects uh, the church doctrinally, of course, what they focus on instead of the law of Moses, maybe they would look at the gospel instead. But it's also very personal, as this entire book is. It's very personal for, for Paul himself, that the glory of Christ and his knowledge of the glory of Christ changes everything about how he does ministry, how he lives his life, really, how he treats the church, how he thinks about church, how he writes to the church, um, how he preaches the gospel. And, and this, is, this is Paul's thing with the Corinthians. It's been since chapter one of 1 Corinthians, where he says, I've determined to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. It's, it's his one hit wonder. When Paul preaches the gospel, he's just going to tell you how great Jesus is. That's it. So you know what to expect now uh, for the next, uh, next bit of time we have here at church. We're going to talk about how great Christ is. Um, and we're going to start in chapter 4, verse 1. But if you want more of it, you can go back and look at chapter 3. Or if you're not done at the end of the day, you can go in and read chapter 5, because this is going to be what the book is about. <laughs> um, but you see how personal this becomes for Paul and the other apostles the people with him doing ministry with him, right here in verse one, and it's really a key verse for the rest of the book even. Chapter four, verse one says, therefore, since we have this ministry and we have received, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, but even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we want to see Jesus. Oh, that we would see Jesus. We have received mercy. You have commanded light to shine into our darkness. We pray, keep it up. Keep doing that. We, we pray that you would continue to let the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ shine on our hearts. Uh, we have confessed already today by coming here and worshiping you and partaking in communion and, and seeking your face that you are our nourishment. So we pray that you would feed us with your word now. We pray, give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Show us Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Second Corinthians talks more about specific 
sufferings than any of Paul's other letters, even the ones that he was writing from a dungeon. Uh, and it starts in chapter one, it goes all the way through the book. Later in this chapter, we get that famous passage that describes Paul as, as hard-pressed, perplexed, persecuted, struck down. Okay, we'll get to that next week. He says, death is always at work in us. That's a cheery thought. Second Corinthians also talks about the devil a whole lot, I think more than any of Paul's other writings. A few weeks ago, we spent a lot of time with Paul reve revealing the enemy's devices. He says, we're not ignorant of the enemy's devices. In our passage today, we see some more of them. Satan here is called the God of this world. He is diligently scheming ways to corrupt thinking, believing, and seeing. These matters of spiritual warfare are themes that continue through the end of the book. But to take 2 Corinthians and say, yeah, it's a book that says life is hard and Satan's out there. You would be selling the book short. There's more to it than that, I promise. These matters of spiritual warfare are, are themes, sure, that we, we see. But as much as we're reminded of the sufferings of ministry, and as much as we're reminded of, of our enemy uh, in ministry, it would be wrong to see either of those things as the central theme to the book. In spite of the repeated themes of pain and suffering and spiritual attack, the real meat of the book, the reason, I would say, for this book's existence in the canon of Scripture is to show us that life is hard, is not, excuse me, to show us that life is hard and Satan is bad, is to show you that Christ's mercy is great and good. Got close to saying something really awful there, huh? But I fixed it. You might say that the major theme of this letter is that through Christ's mercy, we are, as Romans 8.37 says, more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's 2 Corinthians. Or to use the words of Jesus to Paul, from this book itself, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's in chapter 12, but we don't have to wait till chapter 12 to get to the same truth. Every chapter seems to be dripping with statements of Paul's despair and hope. At the same time, he says, we are not sufficient. He said that in chapter 3. Who is sufficient for these things? And then he's quick to say just how much hope he has in the work that God will do through him. The passage we come to today fits well within this greater context, this greater theme, and I would say that chapter 4, verse 1, is one of the key verses of the book. It's a verse that really sums up a lot of the rest of the book. It shows us the theme of the entire letter that we've already been discussing. There's three parts. Look at verse 1. First, he says, we have a ministry. This is a book about ministry. It really is. Second, he says, we've received mercy. And then third thing is, we do not lose heart. That's really why Paul's writing in the first place. Along with seeing Christ's strength made perfect in weakness, you could see that it's Paul's endurance, which is a courageous response to God's grace and mercy. That's also a central theme of the book of 2 Corinthians. We've seen that this book is about ministry. In it, we get this glimpse of the heart of a missionary pastor who is imitating Christ. And yeah, there's difficulty there, there's suffering, there's spiritual attack, but this difficult, sometimes disheartening ministry is a gift of mercy. Paul says, I've received the, the ministry just like I've received mercy. This is God's goodness on me, allowing me to suffer like this for your sake. That's how he talks to the church in Corinth. And, and this, uh, it, this is a task, this ministry of mercy is a task that we are to continue in without losing heart, because the one who holds the heart is strong. The phrase to lose heart there carries with it much more than merely being discouraged. That is part of it. That's a real part of it. Um, 
you know, we say things like my heart's just not in this anymore, or you could accurate, that could accurately describe the state as one losing heart perhaps and being discouraged. But the Greek word translated lose heart goes beyond just the loss of courage and onto the loss of a moral fortitude, really. In other words, the one who loses heart doesn't just lapse into discouragement or depression even, they lapse into sin. You need to see that Paul, talking about the heart, isn't just talking about the place where courage comes from, but the place of morals, of good and evil. To lose heart, yes, it's to lose courage, but that's not all it is. When your path is towards Christ, it's towards righteousness, it's towards heaven, towards resurrection, through whatever straight and narrow, filled with suffering path that, uh, that leads you there, if you lose the courage to stay on that path, you'll inevitably veer towards unrighteousness, away from Christ. So for Paul, this ministry, which was itself a gift of mercy, was one of the things that held him where he needed to be. It was a guardrail, keeping him on the straight and narrow. It is since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, that we do not lose heart. It's because we have this excellent call of Christ to go and be a part of this mission to literally save the world. That he says, because of that, because of the nature of this call, because of this ministry that Jesus himself has granted to me and had mercy on me. He, he calls himself the least of the saints, right? I'm undeserving. I shouldn't even be called an apostle because of what I've done. But God has granted me mercy. He's given me a ministry. And because I know the nature of that call, I do not lose heart. This is key in your battle against sin and apathy. Listen to Jesus call you. I hope we can see that see things like Paul sees them. I hope we can be encouraged by his example in this. We have a ministry. Each one of you has been called. Ephesians 2 tells us that there are good works prepared beforehand for you to walk in. So you have a job to do. You're called to ministry. That's just a fact. That's just part of being a Christian. You take up your cross and follow. You have ministry. You've been called to serve a good king, to work in his field, to bring about his kingdom. You have been mercifully granted an occupation, a service, a ministry. This is what you hold on to in order to not lose heart. You hold on to your calling. The more you realize the very real nature of the divine calling on your life, the tighter the grip on the things that matter. The risk of losing heart and discouragement first and then to further sins thereafter decreases the more you recognize the nature of your merciful calling. Again, this is key in your battle against sin, against apathy. You read the scripture to find the nature of your call and you say, that's my life. That's what he's bringing me towards. To see the nature of God's calling, the ministry is given to each of us. This, this is what Paul prays for the church in Ephesians. He cares deeply that the churches, whether it's Corinth or Ephesus or North Fork, he cares that the church knows the nature of this call. In Paul's great big long prayer in Ephesians 1, he includes this prayer request. He says, I pray that you would know what is the hope of his calling or what he has called you to. So what is our ministry that has been given to us? What is this, this upward call of Christ? In the simplest form, it's, it's to take up your cross and follow him. It's to be with Jesus so that you can become more and more like Jesus. Um, if you, if you want to, uh, have a, a simple answer to this question. What is this call? What are you called to be? You could go back to the first chapter, again, of 1 Corinthians, where Paul writes to this church that's got all sorts of problems, and he says, you are called to be saints. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. 
That's holy ones. That's your calling. You're called. Jesus is calling you to be holy as he is holy. It, it, your calling is to grow in Christ-likeness. Christ this is Paul's calling. It's the Corinthians' calling. It's your calling. It's to be holy. And we see in this passage, we saw in chapter 3, that the transformation that we ache for, that we're called to, is the result of having the glory of God shine on you in the face of Jesus. To walk in your calling or pursue your calling is accomplished by no other means other than just spending all your time with Christ himself. Now, we're getting away uh, from our text in 2 Corinthians just a little bit, but not too far. Uh, verse 2 actually shows us a little bit of what walking in this calling looks like. It shows us what the one, uh, what the one who has been shown mercy and given a ministry and does not lose heart. What, what does that look like? Read on. It says, but we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. This is written in contrast to the courage and fortitude shown by those who, uh, who do not lose heart, the, the, the hidden things of shame, craftiness, these things. These are, these are things what the ministry shouldn't look like. What does continuing in your calling look like? What does that long obedience in the same direction look like? It looks like living in the light. This verse could be a description of what, what John calls us to, walk in the light as he is in the light, 1 John 1, 7. The one who continues without losing heart renounces the hidden things of shame. Now, Paul could be talking about a few different things here. As an isolated phrase, things of shame, that probably brings to mind, you know, various sins, secret sins, perhaps, that you would be ashamed of, so they remain hidden, and Paul says, no, you renounce them instead. And certainly, it is right to see that concealing those sins, which can really only be cleansed through confession and repentance, that would be wrong. That would not be walking in the light. That the one who does not lose heart is not one who keeps those things covered. And we know that Paul was very open about his past life as a persecutor of the church. So to confess sin, to forsake sin, to renounce the hidden things of shame, all of this is part of not losing heart or evidence of not losing heart. If there's application there for you to take, you're welcome to it. But that's probably not all that Paul is talking about. Uh, remember the context. Chapter 3 was all about comparing the law of Moses, with, which was glorious in its own way, with the greater glory of the gospel and the ministry of the Spirit. He spent a whole long time writing about a veiled ministry, about a glory that has to be covered up or hidden. And, and he compared that with an unveiled ministry where we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Moses' face was veiled, it was hidden, but we with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of the Lord. We also see that he's not done talking about these things. In verse 3, he brings up the veil again. In verse 4 of chapter 4, he mentions blindness again, which is what he, he talked about in chapter 3 in connection with reading the Old Testament apart from the revelation of Christ. There's like a blindness there. In this context, it makes much more sense for the hidden things of shame that Paul has renounced is this type of religion or religiosity that grows out of a Christless understanding of law. The hidden things of shame could be the same as what Paul called the ministry of death 
or the ministry of condemnation. It's law without grace. This certainly fits the context, but don't you see how this also fits the description as well? The law, the handwriting of requirements against us, without their fulfillment in Christ, without the hope of the gospel, are things that bring shame to the one who has stumbled. The law without grace prompts that person to hide and to cover and to veil. Adam and Eve covering themselves with fig leaves were responding to a type of law, not yet understanding the grace that that lawgiver intended on giving. When Paul says he has renounced this way of life, this hide the shame attitude, he's continuing in this theme of law versus gospel. And the gospel, which shines a light on us, all of us, even the ugly parts, the gospel looks sin in the eye, calls it what it is, calls it by its name, and then takes away all its force and power over us. It's not to be communicated then deceitfully. The ones preaching it and living it are not to walk in craftiness. These are both descriptions of a person who is having to find loopholes because the message that they are presenting isn't matching up with the life that they are leading. They have to preach a gospel that has a whole lot of gray areas that doesn't really call out sin, especially their own. And they have to live in a way that will make them appear to be obedient to the standards that they preach. That's not how the gospel works. But the legalism that the Corinthians were slipping back into demands that kind of behavior. Going back to Judaism, back to the Mosaic Covenant, was to go back to a place where you have to be very careful to pretend that you're holy. There's a deceit that's required because no one's allowed to say what a great sinner they are with the bluntness that Paul very freely employs. There's a craftiness that's necessary when you have to be constantly thinking of how the hidden things of shame need to stay hidden. This is all very different from how Paul describes his ministry. He says, I make manifest the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. It's all out in the open. He's walking in the light. He's preaching in the light manifestation of the truth is the opposite of hidden things of shame. Commending ourselves to every man's conscience is to say, hey, you see what we are, you see what we speak, what we say, how we preach. There's no deceit here. There's no subtleties. This is the gospel, plain and simple. This is the opposite of speaking with deceit or craftiness. Now, remember how Paul, he kind of balked at the idea of needing letters of commendation to Corinth because he planted the church. Like he planted that church and he comes back and they're like, what are your credentials? And he's like, you are, obviously. That, that word commending, the letters of condemnation that they were acquiring from him, it shows up again here. He's offering his, his letter of condemnation right now. He says that the commendation he needs and the commendation that he, he gives is one of manifesting the truth to every man's conscience in the sight of God. It's not done in secret. It's, it's not a sealed letter. It's not done with deceit. It's right there in the open. This manifestation of the truth, I believe, is simply the preaching of the gospel of grace. Because it's the preaching of the gospel and how it's received that Paul turns to next. Verse 3, he says, But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. He says, he said, the gospel, unlike the law of Moses, can be seen without any barriers. We don't put it behind a veil. We don't put it behind closed doors just for some, just for the special people, the holy people, the people that can pretend they're better than you. The gospel can be preached without secrets. 
There's no backroom deals. It's all out in the open. It isn't about deceit and craftiness, so it can't be presented that way. It's not about hiding the shameful things. It's actually about bringing the shameful things out in the open and having them be defeated by the blood of Jesus. So it's about making the truth known through whatever means possible so that each one's conscience then can interact with it. And all of this is done in the sight of God. The gospel is supposed to be out in the open. Now he takes on some objections that he anticipates, mainly that if it's all out in the open, and if it's all about walking in the light where everyone can see it, how come some people don't understand it? It seems like for some people, the gospel is still veiled. They don't understand it. You can see how someone might make the observation then that there are those who get the gospel and those who don't. And they scratch their heads and then draw the conclusion that the understanding then that some have must come from some other secret source. Autocorrected that secret sauce, by the way, in the notes, which I thought was really funny and I thought I'd share. It's the secret sauce, okay? There's no secret sauce. It's, you know, there's not some hidden key that only some people get and that's how you get in. That's how you get into the whole Christian thing. This idea that there was more, more than the gospel, there, that there's a, a, another step beyond that confession of faith and baptism and things, that there's that extra level for the people that really get it, this temptation to believe that led people back towards Judaism. And they're like, well, maybe we missed something there. Maybe that's where the, the secret sauce is. It leads people beyond that. It leads people into the occult practices, other bad, bad doctrines. It was a big deal in the early church uh, with some of the Gnostic heresies, to say that they had special secret knowledge of Jesus that only the in inner circle can handle, and you don't get it until we teach you the secret handshake. So this idea of a veiled gospel wasn't so strange to some people. And people are saying, yeah, Paul, okay, you, you say it's all out in the open, but then what's like the real stuff? Like, I know, I think we, you can tell me the whole picture. He's like, no, I was a sinner and Christ saved me. That's really the whole picture. So Paul says, if there's any veil... If there is an obstacle, it's not one that I preach. It's one that they put up through their lack of faith. If there's any obstacle that keeps one person from understanding the glories of the gospel, it's not by design, or not our design anyway, it's satanic. It's not part of the design of the church. It's not part of the gospel's purpose to conceal. We are to make God known, even make God present. The one who can't see clearly cannot blame the apostles for this lack of understanding. The reason they can't see clearly, Paul says, is because they've not turned to Christ in faith. In other words, while it may appear that some are still uh, only able to see the gospel from behind a veil, that's not because Paul put one up. It was Satan, the God of this world, that blinded their minds. And he says it was their unbelief, not the nature of the gospel, that stopped them from beholding the glory of Christ. These ones who Paul describes as the ones who are perishing are those who have not responded to the gospel in faith. He says they have not believed. Unbelievers like this are susceptible then to Satan's blinding. They live in his territory, in the realm of his authority. And from their vantage point that is behind the veil of unbelief, the gospel remains concealed, mysterious, and ultimately unknowable and unable to transform their lives. Now, we need to be reminded of what Paul said in the last chapter concerning all this. He said, the veil is taken away in Christ. That's chapter 314. He said, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. 
And we need to highlight those passages so as not to give credit, more credit to Satan than is necessary. We're not to say like, oh, he's got such a stronghold, such a tight hold. It's like, yeah, turning to Christ removes all of that blindness. The decision to turn to Christ, to say, I will believe you, Jesus, removes the blindness, whatever blindness is, Satan could put up to the vulnerable, unbelieving person. But the hinge is not some spiritual battle apart from the unbeliever. It remains in the heart of every person made in the image of God. Those who are perishing, the ones whose minds are blinded, are those who are not in Christ, who have not turned to Christ, which is why Paul says, I need to preach this out. I need to make manifest the truth. I'm doing it in the light. I'm doing it so your conscience has to respond to this because your belief is what is going to lift the veil and then illuminate not just your heart, but the, the glory of God in the face of Jesus will shine on you and transform your life. Sight to the blind is one of those things that's consistently associated with salvation. It's like every person that's ever been saved has this connection. It's like, it's kind of like being blind and then not anymore. Everyone said that. We sing, I once was blind, but now I see. The sight is given when one turns to Christ. And the thing they get to see the first thing they see when they open their eyes of faith is the glory of God in the face of Jesus. This should all be very familiar from last week's stuff with Moses and saying, show me your glory, show me your glory. And God says, you can't handle it. But then now he says, sure, come on in. When the one who is blinded turns to the Lord in faith, we're told what happens. The light of the, of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on him. Beautiful theology calling Christ the image of God. He is the visible representation of the invisible God. This is something Paul does elsewhere in Colossians. He calls him the image of the invisible God. Uh, we learn in the gospel of John and elsewhere that Jesus is the visible representation of the invisible God. He's made known the glory of God. It is this glory of God in Christ that shines on the one who turns to Christ in faith. The one who does not believe is blinded. The one who believes receives the glory of God shining on them in Christ. Last week we talked about glory a whole lot. I guess I wasn't done. And Paul's argument in chapter 3 went something like this. If the old covenant was given with such glory that it made Moses' face glow, how much more glorious will the new covenant be? The covenant that surpasses and replaces the obsolete old covenant. And he wrote these words, which I've already said once today, but I'll read them to you again. He says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. Now in chapter four, he's been arguing against those who would still say that there's some veil, there's some sort of hindrance to the good stuff in the preaching of Paul. Perhaps concluding that some, like the, uh, like the Gnostics maybe, we're, we're teaching a secret knowledge, and if you could jump through all the hoops and get behind the curtain, then you'd, you'd get the real glory back there, where only the super spiritual people could enjoy it. Paul says now, it's unbelief that keeps people back from the glory. That's the hindrance. And we do everything we can to fight against that. When Paul writes in verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake, Paul is completely rejecting the idea of this unique backroom deal kind of gospel that's like Paul's gospel. 
that's it's behind the paywall, you know, like they keep scrolling and then it's like, no, this is only for the real disciples of Paul. And it's going to cost you $9.99. The, the gospel is not about concealing the glory of God. It is about revealing the glory of God. And the glory of God is not in Paul's special brand of religion or Paul's 10 steps to be a better Christian with a book with his face on it or, you know, the patented pro proprietary blend of Christianity from the Apostle Paul. Paul preached Christ. And he's saying, we're not preaching ourselves. Don't you get it? It's not the brand. It's not Pauline Christianity. He's been saying, I determined to know nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. That's always been his MO. That's been the way he does ministry from the beginning. And now you've got people saying, well, what gives you the right to call yourself an apostle? And he says, making manifest the truth of the gospel is my commendation. I preach the gospel. That's what I do. I'm not going to stop. And, and when he's asked, you know, the, for the letters of commendation, and he says, this, it's making manifest the truth. It's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is how Paul commended himself to them in the sight of God. He's saying, I'm not the message. I'm not the message. It's the message that has been given to me in what Peter calls is the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. That, preaching that, showed the preacher to be qualified. Now, isn't this backwards from the way many of us think about ministry and how we are equipped or qualified for those ministries? Because you, you come here to church and you hear me tell you that you're called and we read with Paul that we have a ministry and we study Corinthians and learn that, that each one of us is, is gifted, we're in the body for specific and unique purposes, but frequently we see a ministry, uh, an opportunity or a need and something in our mind tells us, well, I'm, I'm not qualified for that one. Most of the time, that's simply not true. You have the Holy Spirit of God in you, who not only qualifies you, but also provides you with all you have need for life and godliness. But let's just say you had some really good reasons for staying out of a certain ministry or for avoiding being used by God and reaching out to your neighbor or a stranger or serving in children's ministry or going on a mission trip or serving in this way or that way or whatever. Sometimes it's very important to realize as you wrestle with your qualification or your, how equipped you are, is to realize in light of all the things you see yourself in yourself that could be a hindrance uh, to your effectiveness, you need to remember that the message you're preaching isn't you. It, in ministry, you're not the message. So all those things that may be true about you, that you're bad at speaking and clumsy and not good with your hands and should I go on this is not a good part of the sermon I won't go I won't keep going okay whatever your things are it's good for you to remember but but I'm not the message am I the thing you are doing is is presenting Christ to people in one way or another you are presenting Christ to people is Christ weak no is the arm of God shortened that he may not save no if you serving uh, it was a way of promoting yourself your brand <laughs> And all of your values, well, yeah, that would be terrible. For Paul to preach Paul, that would have been a disappointing failure. For you to go and preach on your virtues and from the supply of your own righteousness, this would all be very disappointing. For everyone who had to hear it, it's pretty embarrassing for you if that's what you're trying to present. But you're not the message. Good news. When you say, I'm not qualified or I'm not equipped, you need to shift the, man the, the matter of thinking here and shift that conversation to, is the message still the gospel? Is the message you're presenting still the gospel? Yes. 
Is the gospel sufficient? Yes. Is the Holy Spirit still working? Yes. And Paul says, who is sufficient for these things? He said that in chapter 3. He would be the first guy to say, I'm not qualified for the ministry that I currently find myself in, except that the Lord has put his Holy Spirit in me, and he has given me this calling. He has made me an apostle. He has made you a child of God and called you to ministry. And because of that ministry, since we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Forward march. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for Jesus' sake. We preach Christ. If we're talking about ourselves, Paul says, it's only to reiterate our role as your servants. And even this lesser message, if we talk about ourselves or the nature of apostleship or whatever, it's for Jesus' sake. It's to glorify Christ. To preach Christ is the only thing worth preaching. We preach Christ because he's the one who transforms. He's the one who illuminates. Remember, Paul is still in this place of wanting to show the superiority of Christ over lesser things, like the old covenant or their own ideas of glory. But Paul knows, and you know, you know by now, that only Christ should get the glory because only Christ is supremely glorious. Look at our last verse here in verse 6. It says, for it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh man, he's going all the way back to Genesis. It's going to be a long Bible study. The God who commanded light to shine out of darkness. That's Genesis 1.1. That's God who saw the earth formless and void and said, let there be light. But that creative act was only the beginning of God's reordering of formless voids. The God who commanded light to shine out of the darkness has also said to our darkened hearts, let there be light. John, he riffs on this theme too in John chapter 1. He's very clear that he's beginning a new Genesis, right? He begins in the beginning, John 1, 1. In the beginning. But then he continues the parallels, writing in John 1 verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, Paul's drawing the same connection here, saying that the one in whom is life, the one who is the light of men, gives us this light of knowledge. Christ is present, willing to reorder your darkened minds and hearts, the formless void of us. He says, let there be light. When Paul started this discussion on the glory of God in chapter 3, he made a big deal about the face of Moses, right? How he spent time with God and then his face glowed. Now we have the face of Jesus, who is God of very God, the image of the invisible God shining on us with unveiled face. Think about this Moses versus Jesus situation Paul is writing on. The old covenant, it came with glory. It was all very impressive, very loud. But it did not transform individuals into the image of God. Christ, on the other hand, has promised to do this for us by his spirit. He is making you into someone who resembles himself. He is faithfully working on you as a potter shapes clay into something that shares his glory. This passage from from chapter 3 on through in our text in chapter 4 has one of those great big New Testament themes that gets repeated throughout the book and is said very frequently from this pulpit. Look to Jesus. The constant gaze of your soul on the saving power of Jesus Christ will have a transformative effect on every area of your disordered life. His glory, the glory that exceeds, the glory that excels, the glory that goes beyond is so much more than anything you could compare it to. It's a glory for you to behold. 
The unapproachable light is for you to approach. The unknowable God, the unknowable love of God is for you to know. The fullness of God is yours to have. The Spirit of God offers this freedom of access to you. If you take it, you're going into a place where no man can see me and live. We talked about that last week, right? The old life goes. It's out. Only resurrection works from here on out. But that's what we want. That's what we preach. This ministry of, res of resurrection is what we have received through mercy, and we do not lose heart. It's exactly what we want, to come into the presence of Christ and have the glory of God shine us, on us in the person of Christ, to burn away, holy fire, burn away my desire for anything that's not of you and is of me. What's the process for this? What does this look like? Where do I sign up? It looks like growing a growing familiarity, a growing intimacy with Jesus himself. The light of the glory of God is known, we're told here, in the face of Jesus Christ. So we seek his face. The psalmist says, You're, you say, seek my face, your face, Lord, I will seek. So we get to know Jesus. We seek him first. We pray to know Christ, to see Christ, to follow Christ. We pray, show us your glory. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's pray. Jesus, we worship you. We glory in your presence. We're humbled that you would give us such mercy, such ministry. And we look to you, Jesus, and looking at you, we do not lose heart. All we have need of, your hand has provided. We thank you for providing us with Christ himself, our nourishment. We pray, fix our eyes on you. Fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us run this race that is set before us well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please stand and let this prayer of the doxology count as your blessing for the meal. You can go eat afterwards. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. You are sent.